friends. Today is Friday, September 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. So whether you listen over the air, online at kfuo.org or through the app, maybe as a podcast, I'm so happy you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to drop me a note, email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R. B-O-O-E at gmail.com. In fact, every Friday, starting today, I open up the listener mailbag and share some of your comments or answer your questions. And so it's time for just that. Before I welcome my guest and us get started, I want to kick off our first listener mailbag with two of the many emails I've received over the past couple of weeks. The first is from Edward Becker. He's an over-the-road truck driver from Wisconsin, hauling cheese, of course, across the country. Edward writes, thank you for hosting Thy Strong Word. I very much appreciate your and your daily expert's presentation of the Book of Romans. It makes Romans clearly understandable with applications to our lives. I listen as I'm driving around the eastern half of the country. Wow, thank you, Edward, and all the truckers out there who keep our nation's economy moving. Now, the second correspondence I'd like to share, I got just a couple of days ago. This one is from Martha Malberg. Martha tunes into the show from 9,234 miles away from KFUO St. Louis Studios. She is in Colombo, Sri Lanka. She writes, my name is Martha and my husband, Stephen, is a missionary here. I listen to Thy Strong Word as a podcast. I'm a little behind right now, but I'm endeavoring to catch up God's blessings on your podcasts. Martha, when you eventually hear this, thank you so much for you and your husband's faithfulness to the gospel and service to Christ. Well, let's get into the text because that's what you're here for. And this morning we are back in the city of Corinth. It's about 55 A.D., and Corinth is bigger than Atlanta, more populous than Boston, a crossroads of trade and a center of intellectualism. The ancient world would have known and admired Corinth for the quality of its bronze. One Greek writer wrote that Corinthian bronze was valued above even silver and almost as much as gold. Corinth was famous for its marketplace, where St. Paul himself likely sold tents during his stay there. But just as it was a hub of cultural diversity, it was also a chief place for Roman paganism and a breeding ground for immorality. This is just some of the environment around the Corinthian Christians to whom Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. And so today we pick up with the second half of chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. And to help us navigate the remainder of Paul's initial thoughts in this letter, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest the Reverend Scott Adel, pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois. Pastor Adel, welcome to Thine Strong Word. Thanks for having me today. 
Well, I'm certainly glad to have you on. This is the first time that you and I have been on the air together, but a regular listeners will certainly have heard you on Thy Strong Word before, so I'm thankful that you're back with us. Uh, before we begin, oh, absolutely. Share, yeah, share a little bit about what's going on there in Collinsville, Illinois. Good Shepherd. Well, the big news is that I'm not in Collinsville anymore. I uh, took a call to serve at Zion Imperial in uh, Zion in Imperial, Nebraska. So, uh, well, that is big news. So you might not know what's ago. going on there in Collinsville. <laughs> uh, so you are in Zion in, in what city is it? Imperial, Nebraska. So it's southwestern Nebraska. Well, tell me what's going on in Zion then. Well, unfortunately, there's a drought going on, so it's uh, very dry. It's been very hot lately, but uh, as always, we hope for rain. It's always uh, always possible. Well, absolutely. We petition the Lord for what we need, and He provides us what we need at the time that we need it. So, yeah, we're certainly going to pray for that. Absolutely. So, how long have you been at Zion and Imperial? Just a month and a half. Okay, so you're just getting started then up there, and I assume yep. this is a blessed move. Uh, your family, uh, I don't know, actually, if you're married. I don't know much about you, brother. Do you have a wife, kids? What's going on? Why don't you introduce yeah, yourself a wife to me and, and maybe the new listeners? Yeah, I got a wife and six kids, and yep, we all made the trip out here, and the kids have started up in school and just getting acclimated. Okay, so sort of a big change for them, them then. It is, certainly. Well, all right. Well, you know what? I tell you what, why don't we just dive into God's Word here? Before we begin, though, would you begin our time together in prayer? Yes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here to read your Word. As we do so, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may understand uh, not only what you are saying to your people of old, but what you are saying to us today. Help us uh Listen to that and learn that and uh, let it affect our lives in the way that you would have us act. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Pastor Adel, we're actually just going into the second half of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it begins at least the way that the editors have divided it up with verse 18. But we know that this is all one singular thought. So catch us up. Correct. What has happened in just this little first section that leads into what we're going to talk about today? Well, as you know, Paul writes letters to several different churches. And it's clear that, uh, I mean, Paul is an apostle and and starting churches with new pastors. And one of the things that his letters are trying to do is to help them and encourage them in pure doctrine and in uh, sanctified living. But just as with people today, not everyone does exactly what they should. Not everyone thinks exactly what they should. And so several of these letters also deal with that. And, And the church at Corinth is no different. It's he will call them saints, right? So they are believers, and yet at the same time, he is addressing some of the problems that he or others have noticed going on there. And in Corinth especially, one of the problems that they have is what he calls divisions, and that the, the church is forming cliques. And specifically, one of the things that he'll mention is that 
they all kind of like these different cliques tend to group around their favorite teachers. So some of them say they like Paul or some of them say they like Peter or Apollos or some will just say, no, 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 I, I just like Christ. And as, as pious as all of that sounds, it's actually causing fractures in the church. And so this is one of the things that he's going to be dealing with in this letter. And, and one of the things that he'll touch on in the section that we, that we uh, go through today. So in this introduction, Paul is preparing them for some of the corrections and redirections that he's going to give them. But it's so important, just as you pointed out, that they remember that even in the midst of their straying, Paul calls them saints. He planted this congregation, uh, and just as he had much concern for the Roman Christians, even though he didn't plant that church, he has possibly even more of a connection, an emotional one at least, and also as a spiritual father. And you see that, I think, coming out in his letters. And so right before our section today, which is uh, verse 18, he says or writes in first, verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, which is a little bit ironic because Paul is extremely wise. He is very good at rhetoric. He's a very good at displaying eloquent wisdom, but he doesn't want his ability to proclaim the gospel to get in the way of the message of the gospel. And it sounds like, Pastor, and correct me if you think differently, but it sounds like they're joining these cliques and they're surrounded by, uh, people are surrounded by uh, this desire to, to claim a particular, I don't know, cult of personality, I guess is the word I'm looking for. So perhaps they're like, correct. well, Paul's the pastor I like, or, you know, uh, correct. well, I just like Christ. And I think that, that's why Paul comes in and, and he may even be saying a little humble bragging, right? It's not about how well you preach. It's about what you preach. No, I think you're exactly right. And as I said, so this is, this addresses churches 2000 years ago. And yet we know that this goes on today. Like you said, there are cults of personality or we, we all recognize that different men in the pastoral office, uh, they're all different. And some of them have, better gifts of speaking, if you want to say it that way, or some of them have a certain charisma. And that's fine. I mean, that's who God made them to be. But at the same time, it, it can cause people to then glom onto that certain person, or I just really like how this person speaks. And then another pastor comes or, or they're somewhere else and they just think, well, I don't like this one as much. And that this can actually lead them astray then because if it's not Paul or if it's not Apollos, if you're just like, well, then I don't really think I need to go to church or if it's not pastor so-and-so, I just don't, I just don't like that as much. Well then what, what was it that you were attracted to at church? Were you, were you even attracted right. to the words that they were saying? And as you said, the, the, the gospel can be preached eloquently. It can also be, preached in very plain or simple language, but it is, it should be about Christ and him crucified and, and that we are saved through that. And without that, it doesn't really matter how eloquent you are, or you can be plain spoken and straightforward, but if it's not about Christ and him crucified, 
then it may be plain or eloquent speech, but it, it's not actually what saves, and it's not actually the gospel. Well, that's precisely right. You know, I, I do believe, though, that while pastors and preachers certainly have an obligation to engage the people, you wouldn't want to yep. be, you know, dull or plain spoken or boring, like on purpose, of course. But no, at the no, no. same time, what? Yeah, but what's what's important is that the people are receiving the clear message of the gospel. So in the same way, in the same way that someone might say, well, I prefer so and so's preaching to so and so's. There's nothing wrong with, I suppose, having a preference, but what is no. at utmost important is the content of that message. And worse, especially, I think, today. Well, I shouldn't say especially today because Paul's dealing with it here. But even Correct. today, yeah. there are people out there who are really slick and polished and savvy. I could name a few, right, on TV and other places. And they are, are, are void of the true gospel but they attract a mm -hmm. grand following because of the style and, of course, the false content of what they preach. Yes. And, and sometimes, I mean, you're right, sometimes it is false content. Other times it's just content, which is neither here or there, or maybe beneficial in some way, but it's not the same thing as proclaiming Christ. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So it's this eloquent wisdom that he's setting up against what he's going to say next. And so I, I want to get these verses under our belt and out on the table so that we can talk about them. And I'm going to go through just about half of our reading through verse 25. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18 from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we see here some, you know, sacred foolishness, some sacred senselessness versus this worldly wisdom. And God says his way is better. So the word of the cross is a joke to those who are perishing. Take us from there, Pastor. What's 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 going on? Well, it, like you said, it, it is just it does not make sense to the world that the Son of God would be crucified and rise again, and that that's what all of history hinges around. That's how God saves the world. That's what makes everything right through that. And that, that is not the way that the world thinks. Just no one, <laughs> no one just intuitively as a sinner thinks, well, yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense, and we believe that, and... It's great that God works that way. Just no one comes to that conclusion. 
Right. Christianity, as I've said before, is not a volunteer religion. You know, it's not as though you get presented all these different ways through which you can be saved and people go, oh, OK, well, you know, I think the Christianity makes the most sense. I'll go with that. No, it, it, you have to be called into it. The things of exactly. God are so outside of our experience and expectations that they seem like a, a big joke to those who don't have faith in them. Yeah, they, they, they see it as a joke, but also if you just kind of insist on it, then they see it as offensive. <laughs> right. That's when it becomes a stumbling block. Yes. Yes. And so this is just uh, – and there's just a way that as we preach it the best that we can, but there is just a way that we have to recognize that it's not going to be reasonable or palatable to the world at large. We welcome all through our doors, but we, we do have to recognize that, that Paul is saying here, listen guys, it is not going to make sense to them. And they will find it uh, at best foolish and at worst offensive. And then they will treat you that way. And so they will look down upon Christians and Christianity and down upon Christ and the message of the gospel because that is not how they think, and it doesn't fit into their system. Yeah, the word folly here used from, you know, moria, morose, kind of like moron, that idea. You know, it just – it doesn't it, – it seems as though the person who is proclaiming the word of the cross, that would be Christians or in Paul's case himself and the other apostles – but in the perspective of the world, from the perspective of the world, they look at that and they think that just does not make sense with reality. You know, I, it doesn't make sense that there is only one God, but God has three persons, which is difficult to define. It doesn't make sense that God then sends his son to live and die for us because why, why does he even care? Why doesn't he just destroy us if he doesn't? like the sinful behavior that we engage in, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they think about all these things from a human perspective, and Paul acknowledges mm -hmm. this, especially in the context of the Corinthian congregation, because Corinth is this, you know, hotbed of uh, Greek thought and intellectualism and, and thinking about how the world works and the collection of all the wise people getting together. So, you think he's either preparing them for encountering these so-called worldly wise people or do, or have they already encountered these people? Or maybe they themselves are saying, hey, we don't like being the Christians that are sound, sound kind of crazy. We want to be we want to fit in with the rest of the world or the rest of the Corinthians. How do you see this from the from the perspective of the Corinthians that he's writing to? No, I, I think you're right. It's all of the above. They obviously know. Those kind of people. I mean, they, they grew up in that culture, just as we grow up in our culture. And, you know, our culture today promotes uh, celebrity and entertainment. And yet at the same time, when you head down to Washington or when you head down to the capitals, it's, it's full of experts, scientists, politicians, you know, all, all these guys who are working on different economic plans and strategies, they're all experts. And we all think that's the way it should work. We think you should be smart and able to articulate yourself or at least good at computer programming or algorithm, algorithms or something to 
get us out of whatever particular problem we're trying to address. And the Corinthian context was no different. They also had experts and they had philosophers and they had rhetoricians, right? People who could speak and argue well. Debaters, I think, is one of the things that, that Paul says in this paragraph. And so they, they've been around. That's how their system works. It's very similar in many ways to how our system works. And so they already knew this. And Paul just says, well, the king, I mean, Jesus talks about it just by saying the kingdom of God and going into parables and how they work differently from our regular systems. And Paul's saying the same thing. Listen, that is not how God works. And one of the reasons he doesn't work that way is so that people know it's not man-made, so that people will know it's not from us. This is, this is kind of what God did in the Old Testament, too. If you think with Gideon, for example, is the reason he whittles it down to 300 men is so that, so that they all know, there could be no doubt, that this is a miraculous feat of God that is accomplishing the victory, and not so that they could say, well, it was our own smarts or it was our own strength and skill that got us here. Paul's saying the same thing with the gospel. He said, it, it works exactly this way so that you know no man thought it up. This, this was no one's plan, and yet it's God's plan. So it's the one that is the real one. It's the one that works. Yeah, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And then has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You brought out how the experts in our society and in Corinthian society undoubtedly are looking to solve the world's problems. And I would argue that I bet some of those problems uh, that we are trying to solve today have existed since the first century, and they probably won't be solved ever because right. they are founded in the ultimate problem, which is the problem of sin. But the world yeah. doesn't see that as the problem. And so when God comes around with a solution to the to a problem the world doesn't have, then they think it's foolish. You know, it's only important about how we can, you know, <laughs> yes. you know uh, change the economy or change the weather or change whatever we want to change about ourselves. But submitting to God's order, submitting to God's will. Yeah, that's definitely not on the mind of most folks today. Yeah, they, they will see and try and correct the symptoms, but not recognize the disease. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, a joke, a folly to Gentiles. So this idea that Greeks are seeking wisdom and Jews are demanding signs, this seems like Paul is still bringing in his huh, always under, the under, undercurrent is always there about this Jews versus Gentiles. In this context, you know, the Greeks, they're in this area of, of Greek rule. Eventually, Romans are going to take over, but they're, they're going to, they're just sort of known for being these people who are seeking wisdom. But he brings in Jews here, too, to talk about the signs. Uh, what kind of signs were the Jews looking for? Uh, we talked a little bit about what the, the wisdom the Greeks were seeking for. Yeah, so, I mean, the Jewish culture and Greek culture is different. I mean, they are raised differently, and at least the Jews should have some basic knowledge of the Old Testament. And they all know Moses, and they all know 
that story of him meeting God at the burning bush. And you remember when when Moses says, well, who am I? Why, why would anyone believe me? God gives him signs to perform. And, you know, throwing the staff or putting his hand in his cloak, in these All kind right. of things. As well as when you get when he gets to Egypt, of course, you have the plagues. And the, these are signs. Or if you think of Elijah and Elisha, right? They did miracles. And that this proved in part, al- along with their preaching and teaching, that they were men of God. So if you're a Jew, even if you didn't grow up in, you know, what we call Israel today, you would have known this about the Old Testament, and you would have known about these kind of signs. And then when you get to Jesus in the New Testament, this is one thing that they're constantly asking him for is show us a sign. They want some kind of miraculous proof that Jesus is who he says he is or that what Paul and the apostles preach is actually from God. So I think this is the kind of signs that they're looking for. I think you also get to this later on in the letter when Paul talks about certain miraculous gifts, whether it's healing or speaking in tongues and these kind of things. These act as signs, right? God doesn't need to do this for people, but he, he often does. And so the apostles are able to perform signs. It, 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 the sign itself is not the message, but it does help or should hopefully help bring some of the listeners around if they are skeptical when Peter and John or Paul are able to heal people and makes it click for some of them. Now, we know that many of those signs drop off later on, by and large, but by that time, many of the Jews had converted. So the signs had served their purpose. It appears that there is a big difference between appreciating the signs when God chooses to give them and demanding signs of God or his his servants, his apostles. And yeah, I think of Matthew, you know, they're always just like you said, they're always looking for signs from Jesus. And in Matthew, he says, you know, you're not going to have any sign but the sign of Jonah, which is Mm -hmm. not only a, a beautiful depiction of Christ's, you know, death and resurrection and his dwelling in the tomb. But also, it's so cryptic that it wouldn't have satisfied anybody looking for a sign from him. And <laughs> but, I think but Paul it is the probably sign that, is being that Paul is pointing to as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think Paul is is probably getting this same issue where they're saying, "Well, if your way's so right, you know, we're I'm an Apollos guy. <laughs> so if your way's so right, then do a sign or something." Uh, yeah. And and that's what he's trying to you know remind them of. And the Greeks seek wisdom is no different, in my opinion, than seeking signs, because Greeks want it to make logical sense. And so today, I see we have a combination of both. You know, people who say, well, things not only need to make logical sense according to my human reason, but if God is so whatever, insert adjective here, then why doesn't he do whatever they desire to be done? So why doesn't he do this? Why hasn't he come today? And yeah, that's that's a, a sign that that we are dealing with someone who's looking not for truth, but for like talking points to be able to argue against us. And I think our listeners have probably run into situations where they're dealing with folks, they're trying to tell people about Jesus, and the person is really hostile, and they just say, "Well, we want signs or show us wisdom." Yeah. 
and and I think yeah, if, if he's real, Paul's response. why doesn't he do? Yeah, correct. No, you're right. We, we have both of these both of these things going on today, and one of the reasons is that it, it puts us in charge, right? God has to prove Himself to me in in a way that I, that I find valid. And if it's not, then too bad. I, I don't believe. Or it has to make sense to me. I have to like the message or I have to find it reasonable. And if I don't, then it's not real, which of course is not, that's not the way reality works, but that, that is often the way that people perceive religion working. And that's not, that's not, <laughs> that's not the way it works though. Something to think about now as we take a break. So we're going to pause for just a few moments and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Adel and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Scott Adel, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Imperial, Nebraska. All right, Pastor Adel, before the break, we were just talking about how, you know, some of the problems today are not much unlike the problems of the Corinthians. We all deal with this desire, even if we're a Christian, to have God's wisdom make sense to us. That's that's what we want. But especially those who are unbelievers, they absolutely cannot accept the wisdom of God. I, I think about the children's song um, uh, that uh, that this this says, what? oh, gosh. Of course, right here on the air, live. I can't figure out what it is. Um, I, oh yes, Jesus loves me so, right? So uh, that because the Bible tells me so, right? Well, we don't really believe in Jesus because of what the Bible says necessarily, as if it's convinced us to believe in Jesus. We actually believe the divine revelation found in the Bible because of the faith that we've been given in Jesus. Just another way that the wisdom of God doesn't make sense. So uh, on that thought, on that completely uh, uh, uneloquent thought, and I did that on purpose because I didn't want people to focus on the eloquence of my words. Uh, let's let's keep going. Let's. In fact, I, we're still talking about whatever we want, but I want to get the rest of the verses under our belt. Here we go. So starting with verse 26, heading to the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All right, brother, take it away. Bring us, bring us into this next section. Um, where, where's his argument going? Well, he, he just pointed out the, the reality that God's wisdom is not human wisdom and that this is the way his kingdom works. He's also now making the turn, uh, as we talked earlier, about addressing the problems in Corinth and the church in Corinth. And he's just going to point out, because God works differently, his church looks different than other human institutions. So we all know that there are differentiations in culture for a variety of reasons. And, and these, these days, it might be slightly different, but not much. I mean, you can talk about America as a classless society and there's a way in that's, which that's true, and yet there's also a way in which it's not true. Because we all know that people who are born to certain families probably have a leg up. And that people who have a lot of wealth get things done differently. And that this was just the same back then, right? So there, there are those who are wise or those who are smart and that therefore they're probably able to work their way. They might have to start at the bottom, but they could probably work their way up the ladder uh, pretty far. Uh, those who are powerful or those who are of noble birth, uh, those are the kinds of people who are leading the Roman society of their day. And that Paul just points out, but that's not how the church works. The church looks differently. And so it, it is not that only the smart and the rich and the powerful or of noble birth are the ones in, either in the church or running the church or who control all the power in the church. And yet he's hearing that in Corinth, they, they, they might be trying to run it that way or might just kind of be dividing up that way. And he's going to tell them, that's not how this works, guys. And so you, you could look around a church and he will say, look, you, you don't look around church and see that it's full of all of the rich and powerful. There, there are some of those there, but that's not the club that this is. And you can look around a church and you will find some who are rulers or some who are of noble birth. You can find some who are sharp and have worked their way up the ladder. But at the same time, you can find orphans and widows. You could find regular workers. You could even find slaves. And yet they were all in the church and they're all called saints. And that some of those guys who may have just been ordinary fishermen might be leaders of the church. And that for Paul, just saying, this is perfectly fine according to God's wisdom and according to the way that God wants to run it, but it doesn't line up with the culture and the society that you usually run in and that you know. 
Yeah, it's such a it's really a beautiful picture, though, of of what God intends for the church, but also for, you know, heaven everlasting for the new heavens and the new earth. You know, not only are they looking out into the world and they're seeing the wealthy and the powerful get ahead, not only does their own hearts desire that, you know, we see this elsewhere, you know, Jesus say that we'll rule or say that my my kids will rule at your right hand. We see that elsewhere. But we also know, or at least scholars have said, I shouldn't say we know because I only know because I've read it, but I've read that first century Greco-Roman religions typically were filled with those who were wealthy or nobles uh, being human-based religions. You know, it, it seems to be that the people who were rich and powerful were the ones who ended up, you know, being called for salvation. And these are the yeah. ones who became rulers and priests and that sort of thing. And then when you even looked at a priest versus a ruler – in some of these religions, you couldn't tell them apart because of the way they dressed and the, the fanfare around them. So it was all about human status. And yeah, so for them to look around and both argue, as you said, perhaps over, you know, well, we want to run this the way that the world runs it or to look at it and say, well, you know, what do we do with the orphans and where do they fit in? And he says, look at your own calling. You guys weren't, yeah. you know, you guys weren't um, the super rich and powerful and wealthy. You were, you know, what we might say is normal people. And yeah. I think another part of that, I think another part of that, too, is that some people, when they don't have a lot of, say, authority or power in their own lives, they go to church and they sometimes unhealthily find that power or seek that power within the confines of the church. So whereas the church is built upon the idea of servant leaders, every now and then, and probably, let's face it, every congregation, they've had stories or are currently dealing with someone who's using this humble servant position, whether it, frankly, is the pastor all the way down to the janitor. And I shouldn't say down, but you know what I mean, across all the different functions and roles in the church. Uh, but you see someone taking that and using that to their own devices. And that's not what God calls us to do. And this is a humble reminder that whether you're the pastor or whether you're the president of the congregation or one of the elders or one of the trustees, uh, no matter where you serve, all of these are different vocations for the same purpose, not one ruling over the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, you, you said that, I mean, so, some people just do it consciously, but there's also just a lot of unconscious training that we, we, we just are raised this way so that, I mean, some of these divisions in Corinth probably happen consciously, but some of them probably just happen with, what do you mean? This is just the way things work, right? <laughs> and Paul says, right. no, not, not in the church, actually. <laughs> well, I think that's really important, too. I mean, Let's face it, you know, even in my comment, I, t I said all the way down to janitors and I don't have any right. low view of people who work hard for a living, but it's just so ingrained in your culture. And so they're up right. against that, too. They're up against that, too. Yes. Uh, no, absolutely. And like, like we said, you, th th this will come to the fore later on in the letter as well. And Paul just has to say, well, that, that's not what this is. And furthermore, like you said earlier, re reflect upon your own calling. Did any of you buy your way in? Was any of your IDs checked at the door to see which family you came from or what job you had? And he's just saying, no, right? It's, it's because of God 
that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of anything you did. And so this, this is just another way that he reiterates the gospel that all of them, all of them are saved by God and not by anything they did and not by anything they were status-wise in society, but simply because they were sinners and God had mercy on sinners from every strata of society. It also prepares them and prepares us for this reality. You could be the in the highest position of leadership in a Christian congregation, and the world will not think that that's very valuable at all. <laughs> so even <laughs> if you're the the True. richest guy in church and the most and the most uh, you know the most humble and uh, the most uh, philanthropic and you do everything and you serve. Typically, the, the the outside world doesn't really consider that much. So, so to be to be in the church is not to seek after one's own glory or wisdom. It's one where we should avoid using the worldly terms where it ranks different vocations, as difficult as that may be, and and mm-hmm. realize that God calls us all to a community to benefit one another, and that is not the way the world works. You know, you can't just. Walk into a, a, a big corporation and say, oh, you know, I, I'm just going to head up and talk to the CEO. And it just doesn't happen. And there's some practical reasons stuff like that doesn't happen either. But <laughs> but let's be honest. The other reason is that people separate themselves from each other out in the world. In the church, that's not yes. to be like that. Yes, not to be so. Correct. And I mean, we were talking about divisions. There can't be divisions along those lines because that, that says worldly things. When there are divisions along those lines, that that is saying exactly what the world's saying. And Paul says, that's not what the church is, though. We are here as part of one body. And therefore, even when we look differently, we're not divided. We can't be divided. How, dear pastor, do you think that we can say that this shames the wise or shames the world 27 but god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise what is weak in the world to shame the strong you pointed out rightly so that it's not as though the church is only filled with people who have no sense at all it's only when right. compared to the world um, or what the world values but at the same time yes. you know how, what does that look like what does it mean shaming the world Hey, the, the, the world loves strong, powerful, smart. And the gospel is that Christ was humble, weak, and his words were rejected by most of the people who heard him. And furthermore, he was killed as a criminal. So that's, that's the one you worship. The, the, the guy who was crucified on a cross, right? Not, not given a noble death, but the guy who was crucified like a slave. That's the guy we worship. And as we said earlier, that, that fits no pattern of the world. That, that, that doesn't look strong. That doesn't look smart. That doesn't even look honorable. It looks shameful, and weak, and how could that possibly work? <laughs> what what system are you going to show me that that where that math adds up? And so it gets around to like reasonableness, or wisdom, or strength, or might, or signs. 
And those aren't the things that, that the gospel presents to us. And so it, you know, it, it pu- puts all those to shame. And I think it shames the world in the sense that the world believes that when it looks at what we believe, teach, and confess and mocks those things, that somehow that brings us shame. But it can't bring us shame <laughs> because it's the very thing that brings us salvation. It brings to my mind the Alexan, uh, the Alexamenos Graffito. And I don't know if you've yes. heard of this. Yes. So this is a, a graffito is just a singular piece of graffiti. And this, this graffito is scratched into the plaster wall. I think it's in a museum now, but it was scratched into the plaster wall of a room. Uh, in the Palatine Hill in Rome, Italy, and it's it's a very old piece of graffito, and it goes all the way back to like 200. So we're talking right at the end of the first, beginning of the second century. Uh, no, pardon me. It's uh, right at the first going into the 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 third century. Well, anyway, so the Ale- Alexander Manos graffito is is beautiful. I love it because it is a crude drawing of a donkey hanging on what appears to be a Roman cross. And the text written under it, in Greek, of course, says, Alexamenos worships his god. And clearly it's making fun of the fact that this Alexamenos guy, whoever he is, worships somebody, some, you know, donkey hanging on a cross. And most scholars believe mm-hmm. that this is, you know, an indictment against a Christian, a Christian worshiping a guy who they Correct. actually crucified. And that's that's supposed to be a mockery. But when we look at our Savior hanging on the cross, yeah, we certainly are struck by it as being being, you know, awful in terms of calling a thing what it is. But it's only awful because that's what we deserve. And it's beautiful Mm -hmm. in that Christ himself, who is God, takes it up for us. And I just I I love the Alexander graffito. Yeah, but I mean, this is this is not foreign to us today i mean there's oftentimes in our culture today that faith by that christian faith is looked at as stupid or unintelligent or anti-intellectual or or any of these kind of things and they're just blind sheep following uh whatever the priest or the bible or the the leader or the pastor has to say i mean so this this kind of trying to shame the faithful is didn't only happen back then right but it's also good to let people know that it's not new either yeah no absolutely absolutely because that's what's going on here so god chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise it's wonderful uh but then 28 god chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It, it sounds like, and of course, Paul is going to make this clear as he moves on in his letter, but haughtiness, boasting, uh, self-reliance rather, these things are problems in the Corinthian church as they are problems today. So we don't want to <laughs> boast in the presence of God and we can't boast. Why is that? Because none of our salvation was our work. Right. So you can't say, well, of course, God likes us because A, B and C. And he's, Paul just says, well, then none of you, not many of you were smart, noble or powerful. So, no, I guess it wasn't that. <laughs> right. I mean, I think good Lutherans would think of Ephesians 2, 9, 
or to eight, nine, and ten, hopefully. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it's important to include ten, too. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I always like to add that, too, because we don't want to get into this idea that, well, we're saved without our works, and so our works don't mean anything. And that's not true at all. Correct. And I mean, he has it in verse 30 here. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So he, he's thinking of that whole thing, too. First, that we are saved, and also that through him we are sanctified, right? Our lives are made holy, and we have been redeemed. And obviously, he's going to go on to talk more in the letter about how that affects our behavior. Yeah. So what else can we you know, pull out of this text and apply it to our lives today? Or what else are we missing from, from what was going on back then? I, I always like this, uh, this line from Luther where he talks about worldly philosophy and intelligence and wisdom. And he just says something along the lines of, look, I've read Plato, I've read Socrates, I've read Aristotle, all the greats, right? People that still today are studied for their wisdom and their intelligence and how they help us look at some of the various realities of life. He's like, I've read all those guys and none of them came to this. None of them said, you know what? I think God works this way. He's going to send his son to take on human flesh, die on a cross, and rise again. And that's how this all works. And Mm -hmm. Luther just says, none of them. None of them say that. And he he says, and it's not that they weren't sharp guys. He said, I'll acknowledge they're some of the sharpest. They're some of the brightest minds that we have, which is why we still read their works and and think about them today. But none of them came even close to what we see in the scriptures, what we see in the gospel. And this is just as true today. You can think of the titans of industry. You, You can think of whatever philosophers or talking heads that you want to turn on on TV. And guess what? On any of the channels you turn on TV, and, and they think that this stuff is important, too, because they, they all think along the lines of the world that how are we going to get out of this mess? It's got to be through intelligent planning or we, in order to save us, we, we've got to start changing how we act in order to save the earth or the environment or social justice or, you know, whatever mess that's currently popping up. All of these are along the lines of worldly power, worldly intelligence, worldly ways of figuring it out. Doesn't usually come to, at least I haven't seen it on any of the channels I've watched, it doesn't come to, well, maybe we should just repent and look to Christ, (laughs) the one who died and rose again. That's not said on the channels because that's not the way the world thinks. And And if someone would suggest it, they would be laughed at, they'd be scoffed, and they probably wouldn't be back after the next commercial break because they'd just be mocked. Yeah, it would be such a a folly, a stumbling block, to use Paul's words. And I think it speaks to this idea that 
that if this were a man-made religion, if this were a way to reach salvation that was crafted by men in order to either gain power or to influence people to do things or maybe even from their own psyche, it wouldn't have turned out like this. This is just not how people think. God's wisdom is so much different. Undoubtedly, mm -hmm. we see this even in – so I'm leading uh, one of my Wednesday morning Bible study classes. I'm leading them through different religions, just very cursory studies, and we're going through the, the Quran. And I'm talking about how you know, in the Quran, what God through the angel Gabriel was allegedly revealing to Muhammad sure did change a lot if you put it in chronological order with how, well, the things that Muhammad was experiencing. You know, when he was happy with mm -hmm. the Jews and Christians, so was uh, Allah. <laughs> and when he, when they started rejecting him, suddenly Allah was not happy with these people of the book. Um, and, and you can just see that this is so connected to his own experience. We don't see that in the yes. scriptures. We certainly see the humanity of the writers come forth in their letters and writings. And we certainly see different perspectives, but God's plan for our salvation is is just so uniquely God. And I think that's why it's hard to to uh, move forward with this idea that I'm going to talk people into the faith or I'm going to go out and I'm going to uh, convince people to give their hearts to Jesus or sign on the dotted line. No, you must yep. be called to faith by God because of this very thing. Yeah, that, then that's exactly one of the things that drives us nuts, right? That, that we're not in charge, that we that we can't do it for someone else or even ourselves. Uh, you, you have it in Isaiah, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, not your ways. And we all kind of nod and say, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Uh, but then we immediately kind of put that behind and say, well, this is how it should be done, and this is what's really going to work, and this will bring them all back in, mm -hmm. and uh, and God comes back and says, no, my ways aren't your way. When I actually said my thoughts aren't your thoughts, I, I mean that you don't think like I do. <laughs> <laughs> Not for you to keep guessing until you stumble upon the way I want you to do it. Uh, right. But I mean, it, it, even Christians think this way. Okay, okay, yeah, he's, he doesn't think like we do, but then we hear the gospel and we're like, okay, so this is how to do it better. And <laughs> Paul just says it, it all comes back to the foolishness of preaching the cross. And you're right, there, there, there's certainly times for apologetics, but this idea that we're going to argue someone into the faith inevitably leads to, I am going to make it make sense, or I am going to show them something that they are going to like, and they will come around. Another way of putting it is we always tend to turn it into, you know, the Greek seeking wisdom and the Jews seeking signs. And Paul just says, well, that's not the way it works. It works through the proclamation of the crucified Christ. It works through, as you said earlier, the sign of Jonah. That's always what the church has gathered around, either in that they were looking forward to it in the future, or that we're looking back to it after it has happened. And furthermore, that's always what the church will be gathered around. It's not like that was, that was the first step, and now we get to wisdom and signs. No, it's not the way it works. 
Well, you heard it here, folks. It is about gathering around the crucified Christ. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Scott Adel, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Imperial, Nebraska. Pastor Adel, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we continue in 1 Corinthians with Chapter 2. You can also write in to have your letters included in the listener mailbag on Friday mornings. Uh, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Uh, also, on behalf of just myself, my hearts and prayers go out to those who are mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth II, and we pray that uh, God will be with Prince, uh, King Charles III. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 